You are listening to The Future of Work, Water Cooler Conversations, where business leaders share how they integrate humanity and technology to create a better workplace for today and tomorrow. This radio show and podcast is brought to you by Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center. And now let's listen in as Jen Burrell and Kyle McIntosh connect with today's valued guests. And we're back with the future of work, water cooler conversations. I'm Kyle McIntosh here with my co-host and good friend, Jen Burwell, and our fascination with business leaders who have developed innovative approaches, healthy cultures, flexible workspaces, and seamless virtual technology. Today, we are excited to introduce you to Michael Harris, CEO of Restore My Civil Rights, LLC, Julie Gustafson, owner and trauma practitioner of JMG Consulting, and Karen Nowicki, CEO of Phoenix Business Radio X, and also a trauma practitioner and coach. With today's conversation, we are hoping to normalize mental health, uh, and mental health as a component of health is uh, the future of work, really. So uh, before we get into that, how we like to start the shows is learning a little bit about you guys and just sort of where you grew up where you came from, how you got from there to why you're sitting in this seat here today. So uh, we'll, I'll say start with the brave one and go to the left, and I'll pick the brave one as Michael <laughs> sitting to my left. True. I've never done this before. I'm glad Michael's starting. Wow. <laughs> All right, go ahead and just tell us a little bit about your story. So my name is Michael Harris, and um, I was raised in a small town by a single mother and left with no parenting. I got into a lot of trouble. Um, Ended up in custody, did a lot of time, and I ended up moving to Phoenix to get away from my past, went to ASU, built a really phenomenal life. Um, But I had to make a lot of changes to move beyond the stigma of being a convict. And thus far, I've been able to do that very successfully. And in the last five years, I've helped approximately 225 other individuals move past that stigma of felon and very often also addict because the two typically go hand in hand. Cool. Thank you. So, Michael, I have so many questions, but I know we're going to dig more into your story a little bit later. Um, but thank you for sharing that. Um, sorry, Kyle, I'm, I'm, it's hard to see virtually, but if you want to start. For sure. Okay. Your story is incredible. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Um, so I grew up also here in Arizona. Um, I had probably a childhood like most people have had, ups and downs. Um, got married, had four children, uh, just, I, I was kind of grew up a people pleaser. So always happy, uh, made sure, you know, the party was always going. Um, one day my life came to a halt. I had, um, incredible vertigo, um, which came after some medical things and ended up having a, I guess you could call it a nervous breakdown found myself in trauma therapy. Um, I also, I guess I should uh, also let you know that I did have a little brother that committed suicide in 2010, and it all kind of happened around that same time. And so I had a lot of self-reflection, was completely unfunctioning. And uh, after going to a trauma practitioner, and going through all my trauma, I was able to relieve myself of crippling anxiety, 
obviously depression from the anxiety, just the stress of life and an identity crisis, I guess. And um, so after that and many other things that for my health, mental and physical, um, I found myself in an internship with the trauma practitioner. And I just, I love the work. It changed my life. And I smile. I can drive. I really am happy. I really can party. <laughs> like, it's fun. Life is really good. And I thought, if there's anyone else who is behind a wheel of a car and literally is frozen solid in fear or plagued with panic or anxiety or just can't deal in life um, with their children, with just marriage, with life, I would love to help them. So that's how I ended up here. Here in this seat today. Right here in this seat today. <laughs> with many, many more chapters, yes, right? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Karen? What? Sure. And I'm going to try not to play host, <laughs> which is hard for me to do since I'm a guest today. Thank you, Kyle and Jen, for having me on as well. I'm, I think I'm mostly known as the you know, owner and, and um, producer at Phoenix Business Radio. That's at least been my, uh, my calling the last three years professionally. But I've also been on this journey of personal growth my whole adult life, uh, have two adult kids, when they were uh, both babies two years apart, I dealt with about four years of postpartum depression, which surprised me because I read um, all the books on parenting and becoming a mom. And when I got to the chapter on postpartum, I went, Psh, and I skipped that chapter because I thought it was something that I could have control over. Nah, not the case. I've been married twice, dear friends with my first husband, hoping to have that same relationship with my now ex-husband. Uh, and... Um, a year ago, uh, dealt with a very traumatic experience. Mike attempted suicide in October and survived, which I'm so grateful for. Uh, but we've been reeling now for, I think, 16 months trying to figure out what is that, what does that mean for us as a family? All the while, I've been still running a business, showing up very publicly about my story and, and our journey. And I'm very grateful to Julie. Uh, thank you to Kelly Lorenzen, who's another host at our, our studio of her own show and it become a dear friend along with Kyle and Jen here. Kelly looked at me one day when I was just in the, in the thick of it, right? Trying to do business, trying to manage life and be professional, be a leader and also crashing <laughs> in front of her as I've done with, you know, all these folks. Uh, Michael, our day will come. <laughs> you'll, you'll get to see that at some point. But Kelly just grabbed my hand and said, I, I think you ought to meet Julie. It, um, she helped us with some, some trauma integration work, and I think you would benefit too. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> I, I'm a, a certified integrative coach professional. I've done shadow work for a lot of years with clients. I'm also a Tao guide where I help people through healing and tapping and a lot of the mind, body, spirit thing. But this whole trauma piece for me was new. I've done a lot of work around, you know, all my stuff and, and um, done a lot of talk therapy over the years. And have quite successfully enough so, like Julie, was led to, again, help other people do it. But uh, the trauma work that, that now I am a trauma guide as well because I have, have said, sign me up, let me learn so that I can pay, pay this forward like Julie did. Uh, it, it is life-changing. And I'm blessed to work with several clients. And, and um, I look forward to helping more people. If I could, and I'm, maybe I should let Kyle and Jen do this, but <laughs> tie it back to the future of work, right? This is, these are these conversations, Michael's point around having to get past the stigma of, of what it means to have been in prison, right? And, and the worry that might come with that for an employer and even you yourself, right? Um, 
and, and, and how do we show up as leaders when we're crashing and burning? Do we just, you know, close the door and put I'm, I'm out for a little while? Uh, or do we, you know, do what I do and, and keep doing the work and talking about it freely? I personally think that's the future of work, but not everybody's on the same page with that. So anyway. Yeah, I definitely do, too. And, and I think there's two sides of that. I, I just want to pause for a second and just recognize that we just went through some really deep stories of things that have gone on in, in your lives and uh, where that could have gone and where it did go. And just that the three of you have taken a path to help other people with this. And, and it's not something that everybody chooses or is capable of doing necessarily. Um, and so I just want to recognize that and say thank you, because I think the other side of what you just said and showing up as a, a leader for other people is being able to recognize at some point in yourself when you need to ask for help. And how do you do that, I think? And what are the resources, whether that's just in life or in work? I'm pointing behind me to the 100 companies that are working under our roofs and just the stresses and things that we see all the time. So what what did that journey look like, I guess, uh, for each of you of going from like, what was that decision like to uh, flip the switch, I guess, from I want to take my experiences and bring this to help other people? Was it a gradual thing or did you just wake up one day and say, I, I, it's clear to me now, I know my path? Well, the element that I left out and I had to be the brave one and go first, so I get to learn a lot from listening <laughs> to you guys after the fact. Um, you know, I, I suffered from addiction for seven years with prescription opioids, and there's no reason I should be alive. Um, something else that I didn't mention, because it's a separate venture, is I'm the CEO of a nonprofit. So I mentor and house 25 men that are released from prison with addiction and recovery. We lost our first one this past Saturday. He overdosed and died in my house. Absolutely astonishing and devastating. And I look at it as I'm telling my children about it because they witnessed my addiction. Both of you ladies shared about, you know, your marriages and your relationships and motherhood. Um, I was a father. Uh, I'm still married with three children, and they all witnessed what I went through. And the aha moment, as Oprah would say, was um, I was 40 years old facing 15.75 to 35 years in prison for possession of painkillers with a seven-month-old daughter. And I went, they're so not kidding. And something has to change. And this was during the 2012 election. And I'm watching all of the politics going on. And I have a legal background. And I'm looking at all of this. And I'm hearing about untapped demographics of voters. And I thought, you guys are missing the largest one. You know, we have over 2 million Americans in prison at any given time. And for life, they can't vote. How do we change that? So in a very strange space in my life, as I'm facing all this time in prison, I literally registered RestoreMyCivilRights.com, paid for it for three years, and then went to prison for three years um, with the intention of coming out and doing that. And in getting out, we started the nonprofit to empower men through that transition because it's not normal. I came back to a wife and three children in Ahwatukee and went back to work for a law firm. That's not normal. It was a blessing. It was one of my own making, but it's unique. And I thought, how can my story reach more people? So we started that nonprofit with that intention. And that's where we really started pivoting everything. And I slowly 
started testing the waters with restorations. I did a couple for free just to see if it could be done. And, oh, that can be done. Can I make some money? And now it's, you know, I, I still run the nonprofit, but I work, work full-time website. I'm ranking in Google, I'm very proud to say, um, and my wrapped vehicles are having a great effect for me. There was a big change that happened right there. And this is what I inspire my men with. I used to tell them, I want to show you how to live a successful life despite your past. But what I discovered is how to live my best life because of my past. For me, it was a conviction. For you, it was a, a mental health issue. It was postpartum, um, but they're not different. And during that journey, I got my peer, I became a certified peer support specialist, and I'm a BHT. So I went the mental health route because those are the people that I deal with. And I have to operate from a space of trauma-informed care because I never know what that person's dealing with, especially the young man that we lost on Saturday. He's been out 15 days. 15 days after dreaming for years of freedom. And I don't think that I failed in any way, but I know that without an approach from trauma-informed care, everything is missed. And so that was my big turning point. I should be writing notes here, but I, I just can't. I'm just so <laughs> interrupted. I know. Kyle. <laughs> so, Michael, I have a question for you. So when... If you take us back to when you um, were sentenced to go to prison, you said you were suffering from an addiction. Like, what does rehab look like? Like, how does that process work? I attempted detox once. Um, I relapsed immediately when I got out. I don't want to make this all about my addiction, but my wife would always ask me, why did you use again? And I would have no explanation. And what I learned is that true addiction, not just abuse and college stupidity, but true addiction. Um, invades the needs area of your brain. My brain told me that everything that mattered didn't, whether that was personal well-being, physical health, relationships, nothing mattered. I simply had to do that substance and I would be okay because I would stop being ill. I tell these guys that I work with, I never want to tell them it took 13 months for me to feel okay because that's way overwhelming on day one. But it did take 13 months before suddenly one day I went, I feel good. My brain is rewarding me with natural chemicals. And it did take that long. What I tell them is the hardest thing I ever did was kick a $500 a day habit, cold turkey on the day I went into custody, because I was out for my entire case. Wow. So the day I was sentenced, I did a large amount of drugs in the bathroom across the hall from the courtroom and then went into custody on Friday. By Monday, I was in the, in the Arizona Department of Corrections. It's the hardest thing I ever did, but I never substituted it with another substance such as Subutex, Suboxone, Methadone, the different things that are out there. Incredibly hard, but the best thing that I ever did. Treatment didn't factor in for me, but it does for most of the men that I, that I work with. That's part of my story. That's, uh, I'm 14 months sober now-ish. So, yeah, I just started feeling semi-normal. Uh, 13 and, months. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I went to a rehab facility in November of 2019. Somehow made it through 2020 with everything going on. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy to think about, like, back in that headspace. And I, I just, what you were saying of, 
you become so myopically focused on without even knowing it. I mean, of how much this thing is taking over every other aspect of your life and just all of a sudden now with retrospect to be able to look back and say, sorry, but you know, holy shit, this, that was my life. That, that was it. And how much focus I had lost on everything else. And what a gift it is to be sitting here now with a different perspective on the other side of it. And just, uh, I, it, it's, uh, it's a whole new life. And I just, uh, the people that do the work to help people out that are stuck in that, it's not only commendable, but there's just too much of it out there that, you know, gets swept under the rug or we don't deal with. And so, uh, it's, it's real work we need to do, whether it's, uh, showing up in, uh, communities that you don't see every day or showing up in communities that you see every day and you just don't even know how prevalent it is. And so Mm -hmm. that's, uh, uh, your story resonates with me. That's for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want me to go next? Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, your stories both are incredible to me. Um, I realized that, like, just even just sitting and listening to your to both of your stories, I know that addiction didn't come overnight. It was something that definitely probably was gradual. I am right on that, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I do know as I meet with different people, um, with mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, all of those things, um, panic that, that for some it's all they've ever remembered happening. And for some like me, it came on slowly and later now I can look back in my life and go, Oh, I see where I was running too fast there. And I was just always staying on top of everything all the time. Right. Like my own stuff. But it was, I think for me, like as a mom at the time I had four little kids I'm picking up from elementary school and junior high, and I'm having to wait in that long line of line of cars. And I find myself having a complete panic attack because I feel trapped in the line. I didn't know what was going on in my head. I couldn't, right? Like, this is just a small example, but I'm sure there are some who relate who may hear this. Um, So then I had to, like, strategically make a plan, like, okay, kids, you're going to walk across the crosswalk and meet me at the, you know, stop sign, because then I can turn my car off. That way, you know, I'm not trapped, and I can stop or start whenever I need to. I mean, that's just like one example of, you know, of course, not telling my kids why, just this is such a much better idea, right? For you just to have to walk out here and get in the car. Woo, it's so genius. So many things like that that I started altering in my life work. Um, at the time, I cleaned houses. So I was a house cleaner and maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal and that you can work around it. For the most part, you can because my heart rate was up and I was working hard, but I did have to drive two the location and driving was really hard for me. And then if I had to talk to someone, you know, the person, the owner of the home, long periods of time standing and looking at someone, I, it's like, I can't even explain like what my body would go through. And I was just like, what is going on with me? Like, so I think about that and I felt so trapped in my head all the time, which was a very scary place to be. And I didn't want to be there. I was getting to a place where I didn't want to be there anymore. I didn't want to be in my head anymore. I didn't know that I wanted to do this work in the moment because all I could think of is how in the hell am I ever going to get out of this? Like, am I ever going to get out of this? Is is this just me now forever? I'm going to be afraid of everything and everything's going to be hard. 
But after starting the trauma work, it was, you know, several times in, I remember him saying to me, you know, you should do this someday. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I can't even, <laughs> I might not drive home today. I might have to call someone to come pick me up, but okay, I'm going to help people. Um, but about a year after, because doing trauma work is a slow healing process, you can go in and deal with trauma, but it doesn't just instantly, all everything goes away. It, it slowly heals inside you. And about a year and a half after my husband and I were talking, he's like, you know, you really should do this. And still, even at the time I was feeling kind of raw, but I thought, you know what, if I could help one person, one person who was living the way that I was living inside, I'll do it. Like I'll, I'll rip the bandaid off and I'll go and talk to Wayne and, you know, do what I got to do. And so for me, that was, it wasn't like this, like easy thing, like, boom, I'm going to go do it. Um, now I'm so grateful to be doing it. And it was wonderful in the internship to be able to just watch each person come through and see their progress and just see their healing. It was beautiful. And Julie, what you said really resonates with me because some of the connections that we have here in the room. So Karen is my trauma integration coach and she helps me work through um, a lot of different traumas from childhood and all sorts of things that show up. And what you just said is it, 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 it's so true. Like it doesn't, it's not like, okay, now I'm healed and nothing, like everything's great, but it's those little moments where something that would trigger you before doesn't have the same hold on you, or you don't have that same reaction. You can turn around and be like, I always say to Karen, like, oh yeah, I just felt neutral and, you know, neutral's great. It's a great place to be when you've been so, um, hijacked for a better word. Um, like you're always in fight or flight and you're always like in a heightened state of emotion. So learning to live in neutral is, is incredible, but it's very subtle the, how it works. And when I share my story and some of the traumas I've had and, and overcoming it, a lot of like colleagues, um, professional people, friends, they all say, oh, well, that, that's great for you because you had significant life trauma, right? But I, I'm fine. And so maybe help us define what trauma is. And do you think that most people have some form of trauma or is it really just the big the things that like the things that we're talking about today? So I'll, I'll try to make a really quick synopsis of that. Because just even as uh, Mike and Kyle were telling their stories, I could sit here in my mind and go, <laughs> well, mine's going to sound really stupid next to theirs. Because <laughs> that's in, intense and incredible. And immediately I had the thought that I tell clients literally every single day. Because I have that exact same thing where they sit and they say, well, I don't really, I mean, like I have these things, but I don't remember any trauma. I don't think I have any trauma. And I always say trauma whether it is I got off the bus at kindergarten and panicked to I wound up in jail and woke up, didn't know where I was, right? Like, or was beat or in an accident or abused. Trauma feels the same in our body no matter what. So, and we have to address it the same no matter what. And so um, everyone has trauma. You could be in, have the the sweetest, most wonderful life, right? Um, as far as normal, they would say is normal. And a child will still at some point, I mean, it could be, I was sitting in a restaurant and there a fight happened right next to me in the bar. And maybe who I was with 
didn't affect them at all. But for me, it sent a shock response through my body and my adrenaline went up and I was scared. And so then, you know, I didn't know why, but later on I would be triggered when I would go out in places or whatever. Right. So trauma can happen and does happen to everyone. Can I tag on to that? Please do. <laughs> uh, and, and when that happens, and it happens to all of us uh, in some shape or form at many different ages and stages in life, we create these adaptations and responses because our, our brain goes into fight or flight mode. And, and we don't um, come to that situation or that circumstance the same way we would anything else in our life. We go into, you know, kind of animal instinct mode. And then our relationship with that event can impact us without us even knowing it. And we create these adaptations. Oh, I, you know, and we're not even aware of it to Julie's point. Oh, I, you know, I might forget the fight at the bar, but six months or three years later, I'm not sure why I'm reacting, you know, upset when I'm watching my husband argue with my son and it's really affecting me. And I, and now I'm checking out again because I've created an adaptation that that situation is unsafe, you know, th those whole connections. So the work that we do as integrative guides is help people, uh, you know, find those shock points and those trauma experiences in a really unique way um, based on wherever our clients take us. And then we help them reframe and integrate that relationship with that experience so that it's healed and it's integrated. Uh, because oftentimes the adaptations that we create in these moments no longer serve us. They served us in that moment. That's how we survived right? I was in an in a accident in a van with my son, and, uh, and it was my fault. And, and I almost lost him as a result of it when he was a, a little kiddo the day before his, I think, seventh or eighth birthday. And um, the physical trauma, the trauma of knowing that I looked at my phone and shouldn't have been at one point, right, and flipped the van, and it, that, that whole thing had to work through. Uh, so creating a relationship with myself so that I can heal that and in that situation find forgiveness, but also release the actual physical shock out of my body that many of us, we're not even aware how important our, our mind-body connection is. And so that's, that's at least the work we do. And there's a lot of different ways to go about trauma integration, but the way we do it, I, I found fascinating. There's a question I want to ask all three of you, something I've been thinking a lot about personally, and, and because I'm I'm just sure it comes up when uh, you guys are talking with people is the role of shame in all of this. And Michael, to start out with, um, I'm sure you guys, when you talk with people, this comes up from time to time. It's just why, even if it's just, why am I feeling these feelings? I shouldn't be feeling these feelings. I should be able to tough it out or whatever it is. Or I went through this period of time with uh, the drinking and was like, and subconsciously am i bad are parts of me bad versus uh but as you're working with people who now there's a label put on them societally where even if i can disassociate that shame from who i am or, or whatever there's still that societal thing that gets put on them how do i'm curious how it how it shows up in, in for each of you but i'm sure it must be a little bit more complicated in 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 the role of working with people who have been incarcerated or dealing with addiction on top of just things that go on in anybody's life that, that can be traumatic well i don't know that it's clinically appropriate but what i've discovered is along the lines of the scarlet letter 
just because someone gives it to me doesn't mean it has to be a badge of shame. So I didn't wear it in here, but I have a black hat out in my truck that says felon right across the front. I carry a Glock right on my side and I'm not going into gun issues and gun legislation, but I have the right to exercise every freedom of every American. My truck's wrapped in the American flag and says restoremycivilrights.com. So when I get out with a felon hat and a Glock on my side, people go, hmm, how do you do that? And I say, well, let me tell you. Um, but I tell my guys, it's not something that you have to make everybody's business, but it is not something to be ashamed of. I am in recovery. I didn't mention you know, my duration, but eight and a half years of recovery. I could never get past two weeks for seven years. And then suddenly there's eight and a half years. And like you said, there's this fundamental change that occurs that you don't realize is happening. And you suddenly go, oh, I'm not that person anymore. And I didn't even realize what that person was. But I'm not that anymore. And so for me, I've taken, taken what I've called that scarlet letter. And it's, it's my badge of honor. I am an addict. I am a felon. But I have every right of every other person. And I can empower others. So without going into a long spiel on this, my nonprofit is called Valjean Society after Les Mes, if you're familiar with it. The main character did, I think, 18 years in prison, but spent the rest of his life being the epitome of what humanity should be. And I turned 21 in Mojave Unit in Douglas in 1993. I turned 42 on the exact same yard. Hmm. So I was walking to dinner again, going, I'm 21 again on the same yard. This will be here for the rest of my life if I continue in this way. What am I going to do with it? I was reading Les Mes, ironically. And I thought, if he was able to do that, I want to do that. And the only reason I bring this up is our nonprofit, our nonprofit is Valjean Society. Because what I do for men, I want them to turn around and grab the men behind them and pull them up. So if I can do with my scarlet letter what I've done, and I can teach 10 men to do it, they can teach a hundred and then we go on and on and I won't go deep into this, but we all have jobs. Yep. It all affects the workplace, whether the employer knows it or not. So how do we approach that from a healthy standpoint with honesty and transparency, which builds gratitude and value in the workplace for the employer and the employee. And that's something I work with in the nonprofit because every guy that gets out of prison, I have them working the next morning. So I have employers that are second chance employers that see the opportunity there. They benefit from it, but they build community and value for the work that we're doing. Similar to what, what we're doing, we're passing the baton on, right? So when I first, when Julie first said you how to do this, like Wayne had said to her, I, I, I personally have done a lot of growth work. I'm an integrative coach. I mentioned the Tao guide. So I've been on this personal and professional journey and very um, outward about my own mental health journey for years since I was in my late 20s. So for me, it was a natural fit when Julie invited me. But my question to her and to Wayne was, why why me? Why, why are we not starting with, you know, somebody who's been, you know, four years or eight years in, at a university and psychology and that, that sort of thing? And it's the same thing that you've just said. It, it is, it, it's not easy work, but it's work that anybody can learn. 
and, but you have to do the work yourself. And what, what greater gift do we have to offer somebody else to say, listen, I, you know, my own version of this, I've been through this and, and I can help guide you and bring you along the way. So I, I love that because that's exactly what we're doing. And I'm grateful for you guys for that, that we get to continue to share it. Well, if I may interject on that, um, just to put some wording to that, I didn't have the education that many people have, but I'm finishing that now in, awesome. in the university. Normal people cannot learn what I've learned through my lived experience. <laughs> so there's priceless value to that that we bring to the table above and beyond our education. Um, and again, I stress that point to my men. You know things that nobody else knows. Mm-hmm. Each of us, yeah. right? Yeah. Lived experience, priceless. Yes. I, I was thinking as you were talking, because um, I... I have a very photographic memory. So I like, as I sit here, I think of like different people who have come in that I've worked with. um, And I can't help but think it's interesting when I'll first meet someone who will walk in my door and I can see them as this child or adolescent or a, you know, young adult. They come in with their, you know, shoulders down and their head down. And you can tell they just like, oh, I'm supposed to be here, but I don't want to be here. And and that's all that shame that you're talking about. They walk in with like that heavy load of shame and guilt and secrets and lies. And a lot of it is like secrets, right? Usually, generally, when we kind of, if we're doing something we don't want to share with the world, it's probably something we shouldn't be doing. And so, um, but what I love is that as soon as they validate as soon as they're able to express or share, their light turns on immediately. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there is no judgment. And they get to share, like, oh my gosh. And they'll always say, that felt so good. It felt so good. <laughs> and, you know, there are some things that I can understand that they have held on to for so long that, you know, you're like, okay, well, that's shocking. But you know what? We're all human. And every experience is just set for each person to learn from and to gain knowledge from. And so I love to see that, right? Just that, oh, that release of, okay, that doesn't mean the next time they come, they don't have more. <laughs> or or least, that they're looking forward to seeing us. Yes. They, I always, I, yes. I always say, if you're excited to see, if you're excited to come and see me, we're probably done. <laughs> right. So. Amen. Oh, that makes me feel so much better because every Monday I'm like, oh, Karen, and I love Karen to death. And I'm also like, oh gosh, yeah. here we go. <laughs> but you're doing, the, but you're doing the work and that's really what the point is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. So I've been thinking about all of this and trying to take in everything that everybody's saying. And when I think about like the thing that keeps showing up for me over the last couple of weeks, and especially as we've been focusing on the future of work, is we're all human, right? And I think the pandemic has shown us that there is power and there's a business case for embracing people's humanity. When we are able to be leaders and embrace that everybody has stuff, I think it's really powerful for our workforce. And, and Michael, what you were talking about is, you know, the second chance employers see the power of giving someone a second chance or an opportunity. So I guess from each of you, what role do you see 
your work playing in this next, it feels like we're in this new future of doing work because the pandemic has kind of hit the reset button for better or worse. And so what role does each of your um, work play when we're talking to leaders of businesses and what should they consider? I, I feel like that's not exactly the most clear question, but... <laughs> oh, it's clear. <laughs> Let's see, Michael, if you want to start... And I felt like everyone was looking at me. Um, <laughs> you know, to be honest, most of my guys come out into entry-level jobs. Um, so I don't see that affecting like corporate positions and things like that initially. One thing I do strive to have them do is set their goals towards Rio Salado and then beyond that. But initially, the biggest value for guys in recovery, reentering the community is productivity and cash flow with some goals. Most of the guys need to get their driver's licenses back. We need to get a little car to go from A to B. So I'm on a much lower level when it comes to the employment. Um, and so I don't, it, that really hasn't been impacted by COVID. Um, some of my guys are working the ADOT crews out on the side of the freeway, these things that have just continued. So for the most part, I would say that the work that I'm doing isn't impacted. However, I just realized I'm talking about my nonprofit now because of those guys. And that's where most of my lived experience applies. But when it comes to the restoration of civil rights, which is actually why I was invited, there is an impact there because I tell these people, okay, so the whole time I was a felon for 18 years, I lied. Nope, no criminal history. Give me the job. And I worked for, I won't say who, I worked for a lot of big corporations <laughs> in Phoenix and I just lied. It's been hugely impactful for me to be able to be open and transparent and say, this is what I bring to the table and this is why. And for them to go, wow, that's amazing. And so with the clients that I work with, with Restoration of Civil Rights, they all have jobs. They've all succeeded despite the penalties imposed by being a felon. And I coach them on how to go beyond that. Because after it's set aside, they don't have to disclose it. And if it comes up, you just say, oh, I'm so sorry for any confusion. That was all dismissed. And you hand it a copy of the judge's order. So in that regard, there, there is an impact, not so much on the nonprofit side. And I apologize for me blurring that. And so I've got a lot of people that are in their own personal recessions through COVID that are looking to hit a reset, but they want to be able to do it with empowerment instead of hoping that somebody doesn't dig deep enough to find something from 15 years ago. Um, and, I, and I will tell you that everybody that I deal with on these restorations are non-dangerous. There's no crimes of person. We've only harmed ourselves for the most part because the law doesn't allow for restorations for crimes of person, sex crimes, and things of that nature. So we're really talking about people that are marginalized and can't contribute to the community, but they're expected to. And now we're giving them the opportunity to do that. And God forbid they were ever charged with something else that can still be used against them as if it had never been set aside. But as people are coming out of this COVID coma, I do see my clients looking to hit a hard reset and they're looking at this as part of their strategy to be able to go in and not have to be concerned about their past coming up. For all of my clients, they don't want their past to ever be discovered. For me, it's different. I'm empowered by it and I've created a living from it, but that's how I see 
my work being able to impact the work environment as we come out of COVID, because these are people that have done all the work. And I've had a few people, I don't want to go back to guns, but I've had a few people say, we love everything you do, but gun rights? And the only response that I have is if you disagree with current gun rights, legislate those. But if you tell a human being that they're whole and redeemed and complete, then they should have every right of every other person. No different than telling somebody that's had a mental health diagnosis, you can't do this because you had that. No, I'm well, I'm whole. So the only phrase that comes to my mind, and I'm clearly not a woman, I am woman, hear me roar. Um, (laughs) I I show up, I'm here. And my voice will be heard and I have nothing to hide. And so that's the empowerment I'm striving to bring to so many people that are in the workforce. And you'd be amazed where people work and the jobs they hold and have felonies. Yeah. And so that brings, that makes me think like what an opportunity that employers are missing. Um, And there's a whole ban the box movement. And um, we, Kyle and I have worked with Televerdi, which is an organization that in, employees, um, women in, that are incarcerated in Perryville, uh, and they work for large companies doing sales and inbound calls and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then when they, they get out, they also have an opportunity to work for Televerdi or other companies. And, and it was really incredible, but it's interesting to see the shift because a lot of the large companies that they work for are huge names, recognizable brands, global brands. Mm-hmm. And for many years and decades, it was kind of like this quiet thing that they did and they are starting to become larger advocates for the work that Televerdi is doing and trying to help remove some of the stigma. And so I just, as you're talking, I just think what an opportunity. Um, before pandemic, we were at an all-time low of unemployment. People, like that's all we talked about is people couldn't find work workers. And we have this whole segment of a population of people who given the opportunity would be amazing workers. And so I... My hope is that there is some shift and um, momentum, and it, it gives me a little bit encouragement that some of the bigger brands are seem to be jumping on board. So I don't know if you are familiar with the Televerdi organization, but they, they would be an amazing connection. I'm not precisely familiar with them, but I do know of that type of work in the Yuma Yard and then also at Perryville. Yeah. Can I jump in here and talk from a, like a, a corporate leadership perspective? It, it's kind of maybe the the other side of this. Um, and, and to go back to a question that Kyle had asked, uh, you know, about our journeys, I've, I've grown up being the kid out of three other, you know, siblings uh, and a family that lived a life around, you know, only be happy, don't show any emotions and everything happens up in your head. And I was like, la, 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 I'm going to tell you about everything that's happening to me. And if you don't want to hear it, and Kyle's laughing because he knows that's I, how I am still today I, at 56 and I, not unsimilar. I hear you. <laughs> and, uh, and so for me, I opened Business Radio X so that we could have these conversations and um, I've known that for the three years that I've owned the studio, when I went to the corporate office, it's a, a licensed partnership. I was a coach at the time and, and working with attorneys, doctors, and politicians, and, um, and a lot of general lay people as well. But there was something about that group of people who have such an ability to lead and help change the lives of so many people, a doctor, an attorney, a politician, you know, somebody who's, who's uh, you know, helping us with our cities and our states. And when those leaders can find themselves 
their authentic self and they can move beyond the shame of whatever has gone in their past and they can embrace sorrow and grief in their own life. Now we're making a difference in organizations, corporations, schools, communities, nonprofits, because we're having real conversations like this one. I've been blessed now for three years to have these conversations five days a week frequently, oftentimes three or four times a day in a variety of industries with leaders who are some of the most amazing people in our state leading Again, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and sometimes very small organizations with only, you know, three or four people. But I've gotten to know my clients and I've gotten to know our guests. And to all of your point, we're all human. We all have this stuff, this baggage that we carry around with us. And and as soon as we're willing to say, like each of us have have done in our own timing on, on this in this conversation today, as soon as we say, I don't know how to let go of this baggage. But I'll be damned, I'm going to figure it out and, and ask for help. And, and there's so many different ways that we can get clean. There's so many different ways that we can heal from trauma and that we can take a look at our shadow side. And it's all around, to Kyle's point, <laughs> shame's a big part of it. We have to be willing to say, I, I, want, to, I want to do a dance with shame. I want to figure it out. I want to learn how to, to move beyond it. Sorrow and grief are not fun things to feel, but they're part of our the fabric of being human. And we've done ourselves a disservice in this country by not giving each other enough to opportunity to speak to our grief and our sorrow. And, and so for me, that's what I've, I mean, I've done it here on this platform, sometimes much to the dis- dismay of some of my, you know, my coworkers and, and pals and folks at the home office. But but we can heal by sharing our stories and that sort of thing. And I think that is the future of the work. I hear it in, in different variations with people who have gone and done their own work privately, and now they're leading in magnificent ways. Kyle, this is the first time I've heard you. I mean, you and I have talked about it, of course, and you and I and Jen, but this is the first time I've heard you say it, you know, publicly. And I, I, I'm honored by that. I, I'm inspired by that. I... I'm on my own journey too. And I want to be able to help more people. And I, I think that will be more part of my story and it'll look different from the three of you guys. Sure. But yeah, I need to get better at sharing that other than just one-on-one with somebody and, and shame is too wrapped up in it as uh, even today. But uh, yeah, hear me. Uh, <laughs> hear me roar. <laughs> hear me roar. Yeah, I'm woman. Yes. <laughs> Come on, say it. If, if you don't mind. <laughs> I am woman. Hear yeah. me roar. <laughs> If, if you don't mind, I was I was just thinking like, it's interesting because um, kind of going back to your original question, which I think was like basically what would be my hope going forward in the workplace with um, just the pandemic coming, hopefully to some sort of an end and some normalcy coming back um, and just what everyone has been through. I had a couple of thoughts that now have left, left me, but the main thought that I had <laughs> is that my hope would be that we have a world full of emotional children, mm-hmm. right? There's, we, it all started somewhere. I'm sure, you know, your addictions started, both of you started somewhere, right? And so as I think of, and I see um, different clients come in every day with whatever they're going through, I can't help but think once they figure out their thing, they want to go help anyone else right? Wow. I, I now have freedom from this mental state, this physical state, this 
you know, drug-induced state, which obviously I would love to talk to you about more because I know that that's more chemical too. Like you add the chemical into that, but it all started somewhere. And so as I guess when I think of like all these people, I have nurses who come in that have been working through everything with COVID and I mean, you know, employers that have lost their businesses or, you know, have so much fear going on with all their workers and on a daily basis with, you know, the masks and all these different things. And, and then that mask brings trauma. So there's just so many emotional children. And I guess my wish and my hope would be, as I look at a workplace, is that if we are a leader of a workplace, right, that we can be, we can look at each person for who they are, right? Maybe they are a felon, but sometimes a felon is better than a, <laughs> because they've already, they put their cards on the table. Here's who I am, right. right? I know what to expect. I know you're a hard worker. I know you're going to be honest with me. I don't know what this person over here is, you know, just because they don't have some list, right? Or some paper saying something about them doesn't mean they're any different. And so it's really just going to each of your employees, especially now, having just that moment, right? That real moment of, are you okay? How are you? Tell me about yourself. If you don't have time for that, obviously it's just, hey, I'm here. Eye contact and a smile. Just so that they know somebody is aware of me. So that would be my wish. I think what what's the business? It It's people. Yeah. That's all it is. It's it, what's being a leader. You're being a shepherd of these people to provide value for other people. And that's not what we're necessarily taught in business school, though. Mm-hmm. It's the, how do I read a profit and loss and a balance sheet and the income statement, which are all important quantitative measures to look at, but only a yardstick to how are we doing to extend our positive reach to our people. And so I think everything we're talking about right now is so important, not just because we should, because it's a, we're human beings and we're working around other human beings and do unto others and all the other, you know, things I could say. But just even if you don't care about any of that and all you care about is making more money, yes. this is what you should be focused on 100%. <laughs> Your people will, will be living lives, doing exciting things, not to your point in spite of my past, but because of it and becoming stronger for it and bringing that to your organization. And so who cares what your motivation is? Your people are your best resource, your best everything for your business. They are your business. That's, I think that we need to, as leaders, uh, think about that. And to your point about the kids, like, what is a business? It's a collection of people who are going home to their families, to their kids, to their communities, and bringing all of this with them in both directions. And so we have a real opportunity here, working with people, working in businesses to affect change in a positive way that's extrapolated beyond the walls of where you're doing work, but in these communities of where we live, our schools, how uh, the future kids are growing up. And it's just, I mean, it's, this is stuff we need to be thinking about regardless of why you care about it. It's important. To the leaders and professionals that are listening, uh, having been an assistant principal and a third grade teacher for years in the Kyrene School District, one of the things that made me known as a really good teacher was that I could see beyond the, the kids sitting in the chair 
And any good teacher can see that little Johnny shows up and you know he's off today. You may not know why, but you know he's a little bit off. Or, you know, Susie Q who comes in and she's polished and perfect every day, but you watch how she, you know, separates herself from the rest of the class. How can you help their emotional growth as you're teaching them reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? As an organizational leader and somebody who owns a business, these people who are coming to work every day, to your point, they're showing up much like kids do in a classroom. And you can't pour into them and ask them to, to do the PL or to, to go be, do sales appropriately if they, one, if they don't know that you care about them, <laughs> they're not going to stay there for long. But also, if you don't invest in caring and, and helping them heal along the way. And, I, and, and again, I, I know we have many businesses, uh, large and small here, here in Arizona, who say it a lot better than I do, uh, but they're starting to invest deeply into their people. And if they don't have the answers, they're bringing in consultants like the three of us and helping people do that. And uh, it's, I, I see it beginning to change. It makes me feel phenomenal that we're moving in that direction. But look at your employers um, as you as a teacher might look out at a, you know, a group of 30 kids. And if they're not able to learn, it's likely because, you know, they're hungry, maybe not nutritionally, but certainly emotionally. Somehow we're almost out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if we're going to have time to get. Okay. So one thing that we like to do at the end of our shows is ask a couple of questions to each of our guests and they have nothing to do with anything that we've been talking about. But it's just because we're we curious beings and we, because we can, the same reason a dog licks itself, because it can. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. uh, did I say that on air? <laughs> and so I will start with my question, I guess. Here, we'll go the other way this time. Thank okay. you. Karen, what is your favorite all-time book? I always say The Dark Side of the Light Chasers by Debbie Ford, but I am reading a new book, which totally fits into today's conversation. It's called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, and I highly recommend it. It's by Francis Weller, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Holy cow. Thank you. I'm so glad you didn't ask me that question. Oh, it's coming. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, right. So we'll go to Michael yeah. next. Guess what? <laughs> Is that, I, yeah. I really can't answer it. <laughs> Same question? Yep, same question. Okay, yeah. actually, this is really funny, but the proper care and feeding of husbands <laughs> is <laughs> by Dr. Laura. And I'll tell you, for some reason, that book at the perfect time in my life fell in my lap, and I will never forget it, and I recommend it to everyone. And the, the title is very misleading, but I absolutely love that book. So... They're my favorite book. Curious. <laughs> Thank you. Michael? Well, mine's already been mentioned. It's Les, Mes Les Miserables oh, yeah. uh, by Victor Hugo. And um, I was actually serving 30 days in the hole in the Department of Corrections when I started reading that book. I just picked the biggest books on the cart. Um, read some good ones. But that book ended up transforming the trajectory of my life. And I feel that it's enabled me to have the most impact on my community and the men that I serve. So. Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. Thank you. I love the answers to these questions. <laughs> They're so, and just how people got to their favorite. Anyway, Jen, go ahead and ask your question. Sure. So my question is, looking back at 2020 or the pandemic, what's one lesson that you've learned that you plan to take with you in the future? 
can be personal, professional. And let's see, let's go the other way. So Michael, do you want to start? Uh, my personal takeaway, I guess it just kind of reinforces what I've always, how I've always operated, but I've never felt that things have to be as structured as society makes them. Um, and we've learned how flexible we can be in the workplace and with our schedules. I worked from home all the way up until COVID. And then when my wife and three children stayed home every day, I got nothing done. So then I went and got an office. So mine was a little bit reverse, but we can think outside of the box and things aren't as static as we think they are just because we accept them as that. And I think that by being flexible and open-minded to flexing, kind of redundant, it's pretty amazing the things that we can pull off. And especially in the business world, as entrepreneurs, you know, we should think in those terms anyways. Um, but the things that we've taken as static and plastic aren't necess don't necessarily have to be so. And it doesn't mean it's the best way. Absolutely. Thank you. Julie, how about you? So um, I'm going to quote my son, who is uh, 21. <laughs> and it was interesting because he said the other day, you know, everyone was saying how horrible 2020 was, but he's like, I found my wife. I got married. I had great sales. Like he was just saying all these positive things that happened in 2020. And I guess for me, that's what I learned the most is find the best in every day because there's always going to be, I'll use your shit yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in this world. And so we just have to find the best in every day. And there is going to be good. There's always going to be good. Awesome. Thank you. And Karen? Uh, I think uh, COVID, even the playing field for us, um, I, for one, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I was grateful. <laughs> no, I say that I say that jokingly, but really after, you know, when Mike landed in the hospital in October uh, and my life flipped around and then COVID kind of hit and I was like, well, now we're all kind of feeling like what it likes to have the, you know, the, the tablecloth swiped off the table and have the plates and the glasses all crash to the ground and not sit there miraculously like a magician. Uh, so, uh, and I, I think that we were being called to live outside of our comfort zone that, and I, it's similar to what I think Michael had just shared. I believe that's our journey here on earth is to, is to continue to challenge ourselves emotionally, physically, mentally to go inside and do the work and excavate any of the beliefs that we have about ourselves and, and others uh, and, and, and challenge those beliefs and see if, see if it's real, <laughs> because I think we're all tied, tied together and we're all in this together and let's live on the edge of our comfort zone so that uh, we, we leave this world a better place than it was when we got here. Very good. That's, uh, I'm taking notes in here at least. I'm going to be a listener after this. That's, um, let's go back around the other way and just let anybody listening know how we can find you online. Uh, PhoenixBusinessRadioX.com. And then if you're interested in working with me as a deep impact leadership coach or a trauma integration guide, uh, you can reach out to me through Karen Nowicki. 2007 at gmail.com or again find me somewhere on social media because I'm in, I'm there. You could find me at myhealingwithin.com. I am with JMG Consulting. Um, if you look up Julie Gustafson, you can always probably find me also on social media. And also I have a we do practitioner courses through integration trauma. So integrate trauma. 
um.com if you're interested in classes or practitioner courses of any sort head on over to our website i guess i would say if you have any interest or more importantly if you have a loved one that is incarcerated and looking for mentorship and support into their transition back into the community you can contact me through valjeansociety.org the easy version of that is what fit on my license plate valsoc so that's V like Victor, A-L-S like Sam, O-C like Charlie.org, Valsoc.org. But for what I really came, the reason that I came here today was to discuss restoration of civil rights. And I know that I already said it earlier, but you can visit me at RestoreMyCivilRights.com. And any link on that website pushes to my phone. So look forward to hearing from you. And please don't search my public records. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Uh, and can we give a shout out to Bobby real quick? I'm forgetting his last name. So Bobby Zavala, Zavala. at the Zavala. University of Dubuque. He was our introduction to Michael today. So thank he you. He was our introduction. And just a quick thing there. Bobby is a uh, Cochise County Sheriff's Deputy. And I have 15 felony convictions. And we have such a unique friendship. And I'm finishing my um, criminal justice studies there at the University of Dubuque. And at the end of that, I get to do a... I think it's 120 hours of ride along. And Bobby has invited me to ride along with him in Cochise County, which is where I did all my prison time. So full circle, really neat. And uh, yeah, Bobby Zavala at the University of Dubuque, Tempe campus, um, introduced us and is an amazing man. That's great. Thank you, Michael Harris, Julie Gustafson, Karen Nowicki, and my co-host and friend, Jennifer Burwell. It was a great conversation today, hoping to continue to normalize mental health and just talking about how important health, uh, mental health as a part of health is in our lives and in the future of work. We are off to continue building better communities where people and businesses thrive. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work Water Cooler Conversations with your hosts, Jen Burwell and Kyle McIntosh. Each episode shines the spotlight on business leaders who are defining what a healthy and productive workplace looks like in Arizona and beyond. To be part of the conversation, schedule a visit of the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center in Tempe, Arizona, and connect with us at max6.com. Remember to like and subscribe to the Future of Work Water Cooler Conversations on Apple Podcasts.